Releasing our first book. That's what the banner's about. We have some posters we're going to be putting up around town. And you'll be hearing more about that each week consecutively as we play the videos leading up until Doug Heseltine with Good Catch Publishing flies out here from Oregon on December 7th to help us launch our book. It's a phenomenal uh, project, the most creative and potentially effective evangelism outreach tool I've ever seen in 20 years of church ministry. And so we want everybody to get behind it, okay? And, and what he said is true. A personal testimony, a personal story coupled with the message of the gospel is the most effective way to verbally communicate the truth about Jesus Christ to another person. There's, of course, a third element to sharing the gospel, which involves the way that we live our lives out in front of others. But when it comes to telling people about Jesus Christ, there is the message of the gospel, which is focused on Christ. And there is the testimony, our testimony, which is focused on how the gospel has personally affected us individually. And those are two different things, by the way. They're two different stories. There's the story of Jesus Christ, and there's the story of uh, Rob Rucci. One is the gospel and the other is a testimony. They're both essential elements to making disciples of Christ. And that's confirmed in Revelation 2, 10 and 11, which says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The gospel... And your story is a potent combination. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we examined Stephen's final sermon before the high priest and the religious council in Acts chapter 7. Stephen shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he applied it personally to his listeners with a testimony. This is the same pattern that we see over and over again with Paul and the other apostles as well throughout Scripture. This is how we make disciples. They shared the gospel along with their testimony. And of course, they lived out that gospel in front of people. They gave up everything that they had for the sake of Christ. Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's Philippians 3.8, and we've all heard that scripture. You know, all of the passages before that, what he's doing, he's explaining the man he was before Jesus Christ. He said, I had money, I had power, I had influence, I had education. I was the man. I had everything you could ever want to attain to in this world, but I counted all loss. I've suffered the loss, he says, of all things for the sake of Christ. Our suffering isn't just persecution. You understand that for the Christian. Our suffering is giving up of ourselves, our former life, and becoming like Christ. So there are three elements here to making disciples, sharing the gospel. Number one, sharing your testimony. Number two, which those both relate directly to evangelism and then living out the gospel, which relates to the ongoing process of discipleship, which of course encompasses evangelism, but it's much bigger discipleship is than simply making converts. And so that's, that's all a bit of a review as we've talked about how to make disciples and what it means to make disciples of Jesus Christ over the last few weeks. And then last week we saw a decisive shift in tone in the overall narrative of the book of Acts from the birth of the church, the beauty and this almost perfect sense of unity that they shared early on and the tremendous success of the apostles in making disciples of Jesus Christ, even as they endured almost unbelievable persecution and hardship. And we see this shift when we get to chapter 15. And 
Paul and Barnabas returned to the church in Syria and Antioch, the very church that sent them on their first missionary journey, where by all rights, upon their return, they should be enjoying a celebration with their church family because of what God was doing, and yet that's not what happens. Instead, some disgruntled church people decide that Paul and Barnabas weren't doing it right. And so they tried to invalidate the apostles' ministry because Paul and Barnabas were not circumcising the Gentiles who were coming to Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the overall tone of the book shifts from the church, uh, shifts to the church in turmoil. Because up to this point, although there were certainly some serious infractions that we read about by some of the church members, those were clear-cut cases of rebellion against God. And the church and the leadership of the church was united in how to deal with those issues. And so the unity within the body of Christ, within the church, was maintained. But in chapter 15, we run into the first church-wide council at the mother church in Jerusalem. This great meeting between the apostles and elders and other leaders in the body. And they were settling this potentially disastrous doctrinal issue that could have split the church right down the middle. And if you were here, you'll recall that after a lot of discussion and debate, after a lot of testifying and seeking the Lord for direction, the church leadership makes a final ruling on the matter. It was accepted by everyone, and and the unity was restored among them. And the work of the church continued. In fact, it all ended up seemingly very neat and tidy, which is the way that we like it. However, in the six verses that follow, the final six verses of chapter 15, something very different happens. Something unexpected that certainly must have sent shockwaves through the church because it was anything but neat and tidy. It was a big mess and it didn't end well. And it's a reality, that is a reality that every believer must understand if we're going to offer an authentic Christian worldview to those whom we're discipling. If we try and sell the idea that all of life's questions instantly get answered the moment you begin following Christ and reading the Bible, we're only setting people up for disillusionment uh, with the church and ultimately with the faith. In fact, I personally believe that one of the reasons that we're now seeing so many people leave the church utterly disillusioned with Christianity is because we spent a couple of decades selling a false gospel that guaranteed health and wealth and prosperity. And then after all of those years of pounding that message into people that we could never deliver on and God never promised, all those people began to question the validity of that message because the problems didn't go away. And the church's answer, at least in some traditions, was, well, you're, you're not giving enough. You need to pray harder. You need to give more. You need to keep on believing for your miracle when actually all along, God was calling us to lose everything for Him and to take up our cross and follow Him, to seek first, first His righteousness and then let Him worry about all the other stuff. But many of us bought into that lie that if we tried and gave and believed enough, the problems would go away. And we built a church culture that could not be sustained. And the church is paying an awfully high price for it now. When we have questions, particularly questions about life, we want the Bible to spit out an answer. And we want that answer to be very clear and unambiguous and black and white with no room for questions because then we don't have to figure anything out. We can simply look at the answer and apply it to our lives and everything will work out perfectly, right? Except that any of you have been alive for more than 10 minutes and you haven't been living in a cave somewhere your whole life, you know that it's rarely that simple, is it? 
course not. Sometimes we have questions that there doesn't seem to be any simple answers for. There are no easy formulas for success at times, no guaranteed outcome. And that can be very disconcerting for people, and particularly for believers and followers of Jesus Christ, because somewhere along the way, somebody decided that Christians are supposed to have all the answers. But we don't. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that we will ever, uh, that we will never be uh, perplexed once we become a follower of Christ. The Bible doesn't promise us a problem-free life. In fact, it guarantees our suffering for being followers of Christ. And no amount of faith or conviction or knowledge of the Scriptures will ever completely preclude us from having unanswered questions as long as we live on this earth. Even some of the greatest Christians that have ever lived were unable at times to produce the answers to some of their own questions. And yet in God's great mercy and grace, in His immutable sovereignty, His unchanging control over all of creation, He's able to bring clarity out of confusion and guide us exactly where we need to be, even if we don't make all of the right decisions on the way there. Because even though we don't, nor will we ever have all the answers in this world, we follow the way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. He is the answer. And so at the end of the day, even in those times when we fail to get it right and we falter in the journey, we can get back up and brush ourselves off and continue following Jesus Christ. And He leads us right back to the place where we need to be. But what that looks like is sometimes very messy and embarrassing and hurtful and confusing. But again, we were never promised an easy road or a problem-free life. What we have been promised is forgiveness and grace and mercy through repentance and the free will to choose to continue following Him even when we don't always look the part, even when we don't always reflect the perfect image of Christ like we're supposed to. And I know it's a little crude. I read a quote somewhere the other day that said, not going to church because it's full of hypocrites is like saying you're not going to the gym because it's full of fat people. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Or I've heard people say, not going to church because it's full of hypocrites is like saying I'm not going to the hospital because it's full of sick people. That's probably a nicer way to say it. Right? We're not perfect. And that's not an excuse to give up trying, by the way. We're supposed to. It's simply a reality that we have to accept and one that is evident even in Scripture among some of the greatest champions of our faith. You really have to commend Luke, the writer of Acts, for following the leading of the Holy Spirit to include this last part of the story uh, in chapter 15 because he could have easily left those six verses out of the narrative and he avoided, would have avoided this really embarrassing episode between two of the greatest giants of, of the faith that the world has ever known. But Luke doesn't leave it out. He goes on to tell of the great impasse between these two men, these two apostles, two brothers in Christ who gave uh, their lives not only to God but to each other for about 15 years at this point, traveling together, suffering together, running for their lives together, facing every imaginable difficulty and rejection together. And yet through it all, they support one another and see the church multiply by many thousands because of their commitment to Christ and to the church and to each other. And yet even these two amazing men of God don't always get it right. And as we'll see, it gets messy and embarrassing. And I'm really, really glad that Luke included these six verses because we stand to learn a lot 
from them about conflict and about how to proceed when all that you know to do is walk away from a very hurtful and seemingly unresolvable problem in a relationship, even those relationships that have affected you profoundly. Okay, so let's read through these six verses together. We're going to finish out the chapter, uh, chapter 15 this morning, as we continue working our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series entitled The Acts of the Apostles. And after we read these final verses of chapter 15, we'll go back and see what we can learn about unresolved conflict, uh, which is the title of our, our sermon today. So we're going to start Acts 15, starting on verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, these guys have just been through an unbelievable two-year trip together. Paul was nearly killed, stoned to death in Lystra. They've come back to their church, gone through the big business meeting, and now they're getting ready to go back out to all the places where they were persecuted to visit the churches. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. You remember back in chapter 13. This is the guy that bailed out on them a while earlier. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. If you just casually read through this text, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of specific information regarding the standoff between these two guys. But a real careful reading of it and the other scriptures that relate to these events paint a very compelling and a very sad picture of unresolved conflict uh, between these two committed men of God who were certainly very close up to this point. Although, as we'll see, this wasn't the first rough patch in their relationship. Okay, so let's look at some of the supporting details surrounding the relationship between these two apostles leading up to this event, and then consequently some of the principles that we can draw from them. Okay, Paul's conversion happened in about 34 AD, and according to his own timeline in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, about three years later in 37 AD, we see Barnabas stepping in, kind of interceding for Paul by taking him up to Jerusalem to meet some of the other apostles for the first time. Okay, because they were, they were scared to death of Paul. And so this is described also in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. It says, And when he'd come to Jerusalem, referring to Paul, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It hadn't been too long since but he was killing Christians, right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here we see Barnabas standing up for Paul when no one else would and really defending him before the other apostles. And why would Barnabas do that when nobody else would? Because that's the way he was wired. This is a pattern throughout Barnabas' life where he sort of roots for the underdog, the one that everyone else rejects. If we look back to Acts chapter 4, Verses 32 through 36 were introduced to Barnabas for the first time. And there's a description of him that seems honestly somewhat random at the end of the chapter. But it's very helpful in understanding his sort of disposition, his personality. Okay, so let's read it. This is a, a description of some of the activity of the newly forming church. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, again, uh, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see the power of testimony. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, no minor point that that's included in the passage. Names were extremely important at this time period. A Levite, Barnabas means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's a description of a lot of early believers here, right? Selling their possessions, bringing their money to the church. So why single out one guy at the end of, the, of that event and make him a point of focus? And it would be a random statement if it were not for the prominent role that Barnabas plays later on. That's why they point him out here, particularly in his ministry to the Gentiles. And so here's Luke, the author of the book of Acts, of course, knowing that there's much more to be said about Barnabas later on in this writing, including the conflict with Paul that we're going to see, that we just read. He's making it a point here to not only introduce Barnabas to us, but to highlight his generous and encouraging nature. Luke tells us that Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He was the one who sold his property, gave his money to the church. And then if we skip to Acts chapter 11, there's another glimpse of Barnabas, where the church in Antioch is just getting started. And the church uh, leaders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch, where Luke says in verses 22 through 24, the report of this, meaning the ministry to the Gentiles that was happening in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Okay? Again, we have Luke pointing out attributes about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas speaking highly of Luke, or excuse me, Luke speaking highly of Bar Barnabas again, uh, talking about his great success in Antioch and making disciples, and the church is growing like wildfire, okay? So what does Barnabas do? He becomes the senior pastor, he builds a new building, he gets a big office. No, that's not what it says. It says instead of keeping all that to himself, in his generous, very unselfish nature, he leaves to go find Paul to bring him back to Antioch so Paul can get in on what God's doing. The truth, Barnabas recognizes that he can only take the ministry so far and he needs Paul. Again, Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul was up on a mountain somewhere. All right? And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. And they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So he goes out probably to Mount Sinai to get Paul, who was there praying. And he brings them back to the church. And they have this wonderful ministry there where Paul is beginning to take a lead role. And then shortly after that, there's a great famine that's prophesied to affect a large area, including the church in Jerusalem. And so the church at Antioch sends relief aid back to the church in Jerusalem. And of course, who do they send it with? Barnabas and Saul. Paul was being still referred to as Saul at this point in the story. So we're getting a picture here as you begin to piece together these scriptures about Barnabas of the kind of person that he was. He was a good man. He was a generous man. He was encouraging. He was full of faith. He was clearly supportive. 
And then we come to the moment in chapter 13 where John Mark, who has been traveling with them, decides to turn back to Jerusalem. He's traveling with, Mark, uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas, and he leaves Paul and Barnabas on their own. He abandons them. And again, the mention of this event can come across really easily when we read chapter 13 as a minor detail in the story of Paul and Barnabas, except for the fact that it apparently has such a profound and life-altering effect on the lives and ministries of both of these great men later on. We don't know exactly why John Mark decides to head back to Jerusalem part of the way through their trip, but we can certainly hazard a guess based on the information that we do have in the story and the supporting information. The travel on this particular trip that they were on with John Mark started out right from the beginning as an extremely difficult uh, travel physically and otherwise. And yet it was typical of the traveling conditions that Paul and Barnabas regularly experienced as they went from place to place. Okay, this particular trip was a six-day journey to Pisidian Antioch. They had to pass through extremely rugged terrain without any of the sort of travel technology we have today, even the, the shoes that we wear. Right are so much more advanced than the sandals that these guys wore in that time. And so they travel 80 miles up through these river valleys that were infested, by the way, with bands of thieves and criminals to eventually reach the Anatolian Plateau, which was over 3,600 feet in elevation. It's grueling travel, unforgiving travel, fraught with danger and discomfort and uncertainty, and certainly not for the faint of heart. And so John Mark quits in the middle of it. He gives up on the journey and he goes back to Jerusalem quite possibly because the strain of the travel both physically and emotionally may have been too much for him. And even though we don't know that for certain, the more relevant point to be made is that whatever the actual reason was for John Mark leaving, it wasn't a good enough reason to satisfy Paul's personal requirement for future travel partners as he patently rejects the idea of taking John Mark with them on this latest journey that we see proposed here at the end of chapter 15. And so just before we begin to mine out of this text some of the principles involving unresolved conflict, let's just take a look at a couple more passages involving John, Mark, and Barnabas because as we do, we'll see the plot thicken a little bit more. Colossians 4.10, we learn that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Aha, which adds a family dimension to the story. And then in Acts 12, 12, we learn that when Peter escapes prison, he runs to the house of Mary. Well, guess who Mary is? She's the mother of John Mark. Okay? So we have Peter and John Mark and his family, which included Barnabas, and we see them involved with each other throughout the New Testament narrative. These people are all very closely connected. Family, all related friends, Peter, they're all in ministry together, they're suffering together, they're praying for one another, they're very involved. And interestingly enough, the other conflict that we see involving Paul and Barnabas also involved Peter and possibly John Mark. We don't know for certain, but if we go back to that, our main text, chapter 15, you back up one verse to verse 35, you get to a timeline for this other conflict, Okay. So let's read it, 35 and 36. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. In that space between verse 35 
and the conversation between Paul and Barnabas in verse 36, and that space between those two verses, where it says, after some days, there was a very significant event that happened. There was a conflict between Paul and Peter and Barnabas and others, which may well have included, probably included John Mark. And this earlier confrontation, before the conflict that splits Paul and Barnabas up, is recorded in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. So let's read it. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul writing, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So this confrontation, which by the way, this was no small ordeal. Paul is publicly calling out Peter and Barnabas and the others for hypocrisy. And this happens in that space between verses 35 and 36, right before Paul and Barnabas' final argument where they split up. So we can begin to put some pieces of the puzzle together to help make sense out of this conflict that we're now looking at today between Paul and Barnabas, okay? Barnabas and his cousin John Mark and Peter and many other disciples have this history together. They're all very close. Paul, on the other hand, is a bit of an outsider. In fact, the apostles were afraid to even meet him initially until Barnabas insists that he's, he's a good guy and he's working for the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul is then brought into the fold. And he and Barnabas become ministry partners, and it's a bit of an odd couple. Barnabas is this generous, encouraging, considerate gentleman, and Paul is the confrontational, outspoken, fearless crusader with this bit of an edge to his personality. And they obviously complement one another in the ministry, but Paul is now, in a short span of time, confronted Barnabas twice in a very harsh and hard-line way concerning not only himself, but Barnabas's longtime friends and family. This is a big deal. And so here they are getting ready to set out again, and Barnabas, the generous encourager, wants to take his cousin on their next missionary journey. Even though Mark, uh, John Mark bails out on them the time before, that's no reason in Barnabas's mind not to forgive and move on. But Paul is this sort of purist, Right, who isn't afraid to speak his mind, and he has little patience for those who aren't willing to lay everything on the line for the sake of the gospel. Paul expects no less from those around him than he expects from himself, and we see that all through his writings. And Barnabas, possibly still stinging from Paul's recent rebuke involving Peter and the others, puts his foot down, maybe for the first time uh, in their relationship, in his relationship with Paul. And Paul, of course, emboldened by the first confrontation, where he was clearly in the right, insists that Barnabas follow his lead and leave John Mark behind. And then I sort of picture, you know, these two great, heavily antlered elk, these bull elk, and they, they lock horns, and everything stops. It's, it's gridlock. Neither one of them able to move an inch. And these once great friends are now all together unable to reach a compromise. What a moment for them. What a moment for the church. So who's right and who's wrong? Is Paul wrong for insisting that they avoid taking someone who's quit on them before, knowing the risks, 
the very real danger involved in these journeys. Is it wrong for Paul to insist on handpicking those who do and do not go with them? Right? Paul, after all, is the one who almost always did the talking on their journeys. Paul was the one who God seemed to work the bulk of the miracles through. Paul was the one who was often targeted by angry mobs. Paul was the one who was stoned nearly to death and dragged out of the city in Lystra. Is it wrong for a special forces commander to refuse to take a soldier into battle who deserted him on an earlier mission? Proverbs 25, 19 says, Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. 1 Timothy 5, 22, Paul tells Timothy, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. You know what he was saying here? The laying on of hands is a reference to ordaining elders and pastors into service. Paul's saying to Timothy, Don't be hasty in ordaining others who are unqualified for the ministry, because if you are, then you will be implicated in the future sins of those men when they fail. It's a big deal, okay? Didn't get much more serious than these missionary journeys where the apostles were risking their lives and consequently depending on one another for their very survival, literally, as they worked to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Was it really wrong for Paul to consider the liability of a John Mark whose only credential that we are yet aware of is the propensity to quit when things get tough? I don't think so. I don't think Paul was wrong. So, was Barnabas wrong? Barnabas was the reason that Paul was able to go on the missionary journeys, sanctioned by the church to begin with. Barnabas stood up for Paul when no one else would. Barnabas never gave up on Paul, no matter the risk or danger they faced. Barnabas was a proven, trustworthy, patient, long-suffering, generous, and incredibly loyal friend. Was it wrong for Barnabas to want to give his cousin a second chance, an opportunity to fulfill the calling in his own life under the guidance of his more experienced cousin than the great Apostle Paul? Was Barnabas wrong for treating John Mark the way that any one of us would hope to be treated in the same situation? In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus said, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So was Barnabas wrong for wanting to give John Mark another chance at the ministry? I don't think so. I don't think Barnabas was wrong. You see, the issues that divide us aren't always about right and wrong. Sometimes they are, but not always. This was a matter of personal preference personal conviction. That's why we don't see the same process play out here the way that we did earlier in chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council, that first big meeting with the church leadership, because that meeting was concerning a doctrinal issue. This was not. This was a difference of opinion between two faithfully committed and proven apostles. What this conflict does not prove is that one of their desires was right and the other was wrong. What it does prove is that no matter how close we are to God, no matter how tested and proven we are, no matter how faithful we've been, we're still human, which means we're subject to failure. Okay, neither of these men were wrong in their desire concerning the issue of John Mark coming or not coming. I'm convinced of that. But in the handling of the conflict, both men were wrong. And more often than not, that is the cause of unresolved conflict. Very often the conflicts that we experience in life could be overcome, but sometimes the reason they're not is because one or both parties are not willing to work with the other. 
So we dig in our heels and we refuse to consider the other side of the issue or the other person's feelings regarding that issue. And in the wake of that kind of unsympathetic determination, we often have a conflict that remains unresolved. And that, unfortunately, is a fairly common reality in this life. And yet, rather than spend the rest of our time today trying to explore the ways that we can avoid unresolved conflict, which is another sermon for another day, I'd rather address our text, which accepts the fact that unresolved conflict is a reality that we sometimes face, and instead explore what this part of the story teaches us in terms of what to do once we've already reached the point of unresolved conflict in a relationship. Okay, so we're now going to just really quickly uh, move through some principles that are demonstrated here in our last few minutes in these six final verses of chapter 15. And in some of the, the narrative that follows, we'll touch on that as well through Paul and Barnabas's ministry long after this event. Okay, these are spiritual principles that we, we can apply, that we should apply to our own lives anytime we experience unresolved conflict. All right, and the first principle is don't stop serving God even when there's unresolved conflict in your life. Ultimately, God wants us to be united. Paul knew this as well as anyone. In fact, he wrote quite a bit about maintaining unity in your relationships well after this conflict with Barnabas. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What a hypocrite. That's the great Apostle Paul after his rift with Barnabas and their what appears to be a permanent split, right? No, this is Paul accepting the reality of what happens even among Christians and trying to, who's probably learned, by the way, as we'll see from this event, and trying to teach us how to respond. Paul understood that God's design for his people, for the church, was that we remain unified, not only in purpose but in spirit. And yet Paul also understood the reality of human conflict. And he understood the profound importance of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And so nothing, not even unresolved conflict, was going to stop him from continuing that work. We should not stop serving God when there's unresolved conflict in our lives. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm not talking about someone who's experiencing conflict because they're living some kind of double life, okay? If a spouse is having a secret affair and they decide they just can't stop and there's this unresolved conflict there, which there should be, that person should not be involved in ministry other than to himself and his own marriage. Okay, These are issues of sin that are addressed throughout Scripture where the offending person is disqualified from the ministry until there's repentance and restoration. And then that person can begin the work of making disciples again. The qualifications for pastors and deacons for ministry are laid out in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter 5 and other places in Scripture. And guidelines for individuals using their gifts in ministry within the church are addressed in 1 Corinthians, certainly in, in 12, 13, and 14 in those chapters and in other places. What's clear concerning the ministry is that anyone who's actively living a double life, someone who's unrepentant and consciously choosing to continue in a lifestyle that's directly opposed to the Word of God, or someone who claims to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ who's actually a false teacher. Those people are disqualified for the ministry until there's repentance and restoration to God and to the body of Christ. 
Okay, That's not what we're addressing today. When we talk about unresolved conflict in this message, using Paul and Barnabas as an example, we're addressing those situations where there's turmoil in your life or in a relationship uh, that you've been unable to resolve and not because of an ongoing life of sin that you're willingly engaged in and you refuse to repent for and be restored from. We're talking about situations where your intent is to serve God your desire is to do what's right, and you're trying your level best to honor Him and fulfill the calling in your life to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and yet you're being bombarded by a situation that you can find no resolution for. Those kinds of unresolved conflict should never stop you from serving God. And yet I know people who do just that. I know people that have very serious emotional struggles. Some who constantly wrestle with anxiety or depression to the point that they may even be taking medication on an ongoing basis. And they feel so bad about that that they won't allow themselves to be involved in the ministry because of the guilt or shame that they've attached to those unresolved conflicts within themselves. Listen, that's a lie from the enemy. And it's meant to keep you from fulfilling your God-given purpose I understand well that people suffer from all kinds of personal struggles, and those are very real. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with taking medication for something. I hope you know that. But you should never allow those unresolved personal conflicts to keep you from serving God. Does He want you to be anxious or depressed or confused? Of course not. But we live in an imperfect world, and at times, and in different areas of our lives and relationships, we sometimes experience dysfunction, and it creates internal conflict that doesn't always get resolved when and how we want it to. But don't allow that to stop you from serving God, because He can, and He wants to still use you in very effective ways, in powerful ways. I don't believe that God ever intended for the church to split up into hundreds of different denominations. I don't think that was His plan. We have Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Assemblies of God and Wesleyans and on and on and on and on. Who, by the way, all love God very much. And actively and effectively, effectively make disciples of Jesus Christ every day. We all accept the gospel and the word of God as ultimate truth. But over the centuries, there has been conflict about how to deliver that message and some of the finer points of it. And those conflicts have remained unresolved to this day. Was that God's plan from the beginning? I don't think so. But we're a bunch of humans. And so in our many imperfections, we sometimes reach a point of impasse. It's a reality. But instead of giving up on the gospel because we can't agree on everything, we keep working for Christ. We keep making disciples. And you end up with different kinds of churches in different areas doing the same work. We're just doing it somewhat differently. And that's okay. Even if it isn't God's perfect design. Okay, and this applies to us personally in our relationships as well. Some of you have conflict in current or past relationships that has gone on unresolved and you feel so guilty about it that you won't allow yourself to be part of the ministry to fulfill your calling. Listen, Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, Paul tells us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just because your life and relationships may not be perfect doesn't mean that your calling has expired or that you've somehow been disqualified from it. The gifts that God has given you and the calling in your life and ministry are alive and as well today as the day He created you. It doesn't change. So 
Don't allow unresolved conflict to keep you from answering that call of God in your life. And this is one of the great lessons that we learn from our text, from the story of Paul and Barnabas. Did God want them to come to this impasse where neither would would budge so that they would choose instead to part ways? I don't think so. It goes against what he teaches us about unity. God certainly knew that's what was going to happen. And in his purposes... uh, We know that they're always ultimately accomplished. Why? Because God is sovereign. But there's far too much in Scripture about maintaining the unity between us to believe that He wants there to be irreconcilable differences between us. It is never God's desire for us to carry the weight of unresolved conflict around in our lives. Of course we do, but that's not His desire. And Paul and Barnabas, despite their disagreement knew that the work of making disciples absolutely had to continue. And they were both completely committed to that calling, even though there was unresolved conflict in their relationship. And again, it's a lesson that we should all take to heart. Your unresolved conflict doesn't disqualify you from the ministry. And that's what I want you to know this morning, okay? So don't disqualify yourself because you feel bad. Because as you labor on in the ministry, you'll find out that God can produce something good out of unresolved conflict. And that's the second lesson that we learned from this story. Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways to continue the business of making disciples. Paul took Silas with him and went to Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas took John Mark and sailed to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And we know that at least Paul went with the blessing of the church leadership, as verse 40 describes. And of course, we know that Paul's ministry flourished. We know that he did many great works and made many disciples. But what is also true, if we pay close attention, do a little digging, is that Barnabas' ministry of making disciples also continued for many years as well. Paul mentions the work of Barnabas in, in a very positive light in 1 Corinthians 9, which Paul wrote sometime between A.D. 53 and 55, which means as much as six to seven plus years after Paul and Barnabas split up, Barnabas was still doing the work of making disciples. We have historical writings about Barnabas that although not a part of the canonized Bible, they do hold information that can be of some value in understanding the events that surround these early Christians. And according to many of those writings, Barnabas went on to successfully plant churches on the island of Cyprus, where Christian tradition still holds today that he was ultimately martyred in 61 AD. This was a classic case of Romans 8.28 in action, where Paul tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, out of this unresolved conflict, God doubled the workforce on their next missionary journey. Instead of two workers going out to one location at a time, there are now four workers going out to two locations at a time. The work of making disciples was being doubled because of this split between Paul and Barnabas. That meant more churches were being planted and more disciples were being made. Uh, Kanye Barenhausen, their two famous 19th century ministers and scholars, wrote about this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And they wrote, I'm quoting, Of this at least we're certain, that the quarrel was overruled by divine providence to a good result. One stream of missionary labor had been divided, and the regions blessed by the waters of life were proportionately multiplied. Okay, clearly God used Paul and Barnabas, not to mention John, Mark, and Silas, who may not have otherwise had an opportunity to be a part of this ministry, all out of this, out of an unresolved conflict between two great friends, God produces all of this amazing work. So look, don't lose heart. When you experience a conflict that you can't seem to resolve, 
You have to keep doing the work that God has given you to do. And he absolutely, out of that effort and commitment, will bring good things to your ministry and to your life. And this leads us to our final lesson, and I'll, I'll go through it quickly. Our final principle about conflict from our story today, and that is that God can heal the wounds that come from unresolved conflict. As harsh and jarring as the argument and separation must have been, not only for Paul and Barnabas, but also for the church at Jerusalem, certainly there must have been hurt that was taken away from that conflict. Remember, they've been through everything together for the last 15 years. We can choose in our own conflict to carry that hurt around until we become bitter and disillusioned. Or we can allow God to heal those wounds and restore our love for others, even if we never have the the same type of relationship with them that we once had. Paul mentions both Barnabas and John Mark in his later writings more than once. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4.11, while in a Roman prison near the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. The Mark that Paul's referring to here is John Mark. It's the same John Mark that Paul had no use for. It's about 20 years earlier in Jerusalem. He now has great use and affection for. And if you read this verse in the original uh, Greek language, it's clear that Paul wasn't simply saying, hey, I'm okay with John Mark now. Paul was validating John Mark's own ministry. He uses the Greek word diakonia to describe the type of ministry that John Mark is valuable for. And it's a ministry for service and declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a significant shift from the way Paul used to view John Mark. He also mentions him favorably in Philemon 1.24 and Colossians 4.10, where John Mark is seen as one of Paul's co-laborers for Christ. We know that Paul mentions Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9 in a positive light. When you, you begin to put all of these pieces together, it becomes clear that God has done something wonderful in the hearts of these men. Hearts that were once divided and have now been healed. We don't see any instances of Paul and Barnabas traveling together again. After Acts 15, the conflict was severe and the physical separation between them appears to have been permanent. And yet we see an obvious affection and a mutual respect years later as they continue making disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? Look, conflict comes and goes. It is a reality of the imperfect lives that we live and of course, the goal any time we experience conflict should be to find our way to a mutual resolution, yes. Although as we see here in our text, and many of you have experienced firsthand in your own lives, sometimes that resolution never comes. Sometimes we're separated from those we were once in relationship with. And as a result, we often pull away from other relationships because of the hurt that we've experienced. Sometimes we pull away from God and even the ministry because we want to protect ourselves. Sometimes out of guilt or shame, we avoid the work that he's called us to because we feel unworthy. But listen, there is no amount of unresolved conflict in our lives that makes us any more or less worthy to carry on with the work that he's called us to. Our very existence is only by the grace of God. It is certainly not because we have or can earn it. So when conflict comes, and it will, work toward a resolution, yes, for certain. But if that fails and you find yourself standing in the aftermath of unresolved conflict, don't give up. Keep doing the work that He's given you to do because in that work, 
you'll find that he's not only continuing to produce much good out of it, but you'll also find that he's healing you in the process. You see, emotional and spiritual healing is the work of Christ based on a decision that you make. You can choose to shut down and walk away, give up, shrink back from all that He's designed you for. Or you can decide to move forward in Him, to continue following Him. And that is the only way that any of us will ever reach that destination where we find joy and peace and fulfillment and forgiveness and healing and purpose. This life is far from perfect, far from perfect. Conflict is going to come, and sometimes we're unable to resolve it. Okay, let's not focus on what's gone wrong. Let's stay focused on what is right and our desire for Christ, and let's remain true to our calling, and in that process, allow Him to heal us from the inside out. All right, Psalm 147, 3 through 5 says, He heals the brokenhearted, and He binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord. And abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. That is the God that we serve. He's able to overcome every conflict in our lives. Let's pray.